Welcome to Rails with Jason. Hey, I want to tell you about something. If you struggle with writing tests for your Rails applications, specifically RSpec tests, I have something for you. At my website, codewithjason.com, I have a whole bunch of articles on Rails testing that I wrote. Here's a couple examples of what you can find there. You can find a repeatable step-by-step -step guide to writing integration tests with Capybara. That's where I share my formula that I use every time I write a Capybara test that makes it pretty easy. There is the ultimate guide to RSpec and Capybara tests. And there's also mocks and stubs in plain English. These are just a few examples of dozens and dozens of Rails testing articles that I've written at codewithjason.com. I also have a free Ruby testing micro course that you can download. It's a four-part course, pretty easy to go through. Hundreds of developers have already downloaded the course. You can join them by going to codewithjason.com and downloading the micro course. I also have a book called Rails Testing for Beginners. The book can be purchased as just the book or the book plus a video package where I walk through the book and show you everything in the book. Again, all these things are available at codewithjason.com. Now on to the episode. Welcome to Rails with Jason. I'm Jason, and I'm here today with my friend Noah Gibbs, author of Rebuilding Rails. Noah, welcome to the show. Great to be on the show. Thank you. Uh, Noah, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, so as you mentioned, I wrote Rebuilding Rails. It's a book about understanding the way Ruby on Rails is structured by starting from like literal empty directory, empty gem, uh, and building up a Ruby web framework using the same kind of metaprogramming tricks that Rails uses. Uh, a lot of the magic that people talk about with Rails is basically Ruby metaprogramming tricks. So once you've built it yourself, it's pretty obvious how it works. Uh, I also do some writing on engineering.appfolio.com. You'll see it linked in Ruby Weekly about uh, Ruby performance. So you, you may have seen my stuff there. Uh, but yeah, both of those, a few other things as well. Okay. And I think I first became consciously aware of you when I heard you on the Remote Ruby podcast, and then you and I met in person at uh, RailsConf. Um, and I had seen uh, your book, Rebuilding Rails. I think I had kind of like been peripherally aware of it, but I didn't connect your name with the book or anything like that and, until more recently. How long ago did you write the book? What year was that? I think I started in 2013, and I, I referred to it as properly published in more like 2014. Uh, that's either either right or close. Uh, I took uh, Amy Hoy's 20, or sorry, 30 by 500 class, which is kind of a product building class, and I originally wrote the book for that. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I was in the 2013 class for that, and so it went up, went up for sale that year. Uh, and like a, like a lot of ebooks, it went up for sale before it was you know fully done with all the chapters. But that's all right. It turned out I still wrote it faster than most people work through it, so I don't feel too bad about how that came out timing wise. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I knew that you had been part of 30 by 500 because I think I mentioned it last time you and I saw each other. Um, but I'm, I'm part of that class too. I, I joined in early 2018 and that's where my book, Rails Testing for Beginners, came out of. And that's kind of where this podcast came from too, or at least that was influential in, uh, in all this stuff. Nice. Um, yeah. Okay. So my next question was going to be if there's a story behind uh, the the genesis of that book, but that kind of sounds like that's that's where that came from. Was there anything oh. specifically that gave you the idea to like you know you could have gone in a number of directions with writing any kind of ebook? How did you land on rebuilding rebuilding Rails? Uh, I was a C programmer for a very long time before I ever came to Ruby. Like in uh, the ocean. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean the C language. Yeah, I mean the systems programming language. Uh, no, I, uh, I worked for Palm on Palm OS, and uh, I worked at NVIDIA on graphics drivers, and I worked at a company you've probably never heard of uh, that was bought by Google doing, uh, now you'd say GPGPU stuff, but basically using your graphics card as a giant C matrix coprocessor. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of you know systems-level C stuff, often embedded. Uh, and so when I came to Ruby, it was it was a whole other world. I mean, C, for instance, uh, as far as things like background threads or real runtime, there's almost none of that. Anything you don't ask the language to do, it doesn't do. The idea that your garbage collector might run in the background as you're doing other stuff is, I don't know, almost scandalous if you're coming from the C world. Like you can you, tell it, can you help me understand that. that a little bit? So um, for me, like just a little bit of context on my personal background. I was a PHP programmer for many years before I came mm. to Rails. And before yeah. that, I just did like the tiniest amount of Java and a little bit of Perl and like some Windows desktop stuff. But mm. I was so early in my career that I had no idea what I was doing and I didn't know what was what. And so those things didn't really uh, affect me or influence me or anything like that. So I'm basically an interpreted languages type person. And so... Mm. It's it's like the old fish and the young fish swimming through the water. The old fish says, how's the water today? The young fish says, what's water? And that's kind of me with all the garbage collecting stuff. I don't know how it is the other way. So, like, how does that work if you're working with a language that's not garbage collected? Sure. Well, one thing to remember about C is that it predates most of what you'd think of as an operating system. It's that old. Uh, I mean, there was a thing that was called an operating system, but if you look even back to, to DOS on the PC, which is not the oldest, most primitive operating system that existed, it's just, from our point of view, a long way back, um, there's one thing going on at once. Not only do you only have one processor with one core, that's certainly true, that stayed true for a long time, you know, after DOS, um, but when I say there's one thing going on, I mean, your operating system isn't switching back and forth in the background doing things in the way you're used to. So... You're used to there being a table of processes. This, I mean, that's that's how that's how people do it these days. Always. Wait, table of processes. What does that mean? It means you've got more than one thing running at once, and they look like they run more or less at the same time. Got it. Okay. Um, so in DOS, you, you when you were running the command line and it was blinking the cursor at you on that text screen, there generally speaking wasn't anything else going on. You weren't running a daemon that ran network anything. You probably didn't have a network adapter. Um, if you had like a graphics card or something later, you know, after after early DOS, uh, it might be doing something else in hardware because it had a literal additional processor. But your processor, the one you were using, you hadn't told it to do anything, and it was doing nothing. 
you have what are called interrupts in the background. And so these tiny time slices, kind of like an operating system, but imagine that you, the way you wrote that code was you had to write something that when it was called, literally had to return fast enough uh, because otherwise nothing else could do anything. Wait, what do you mean by that? Okay. Um, so when I say writing code for those, I mean writing machine code. I mean writing literal lowest level possible code. And so an interrupt wasn't to do something like read a file or process something on the network. An interrupt was to do something like take your graphics buffer in hardware with, you know, with, with memory and copy that to the screen. That's the level of thing an interrupt did. Okay. Things that you would think of as really too low level for anything except an operating system to do. Um, you could have an interrupt that would let you see when a key had been pressed and tell something that a key had been pressed. That was the level of thing an interrupt did. So when I say there was something else kind of going on in the background, it was all hardware management and not even most of the hardware management that you think of as hardware management. Like printing a document? No, no, no. That was way too high level. We didn't, we didn't do that with interrupts. Okay, um, so it sounds like you're speaking from direct experience of, of writing code that did this kind of stuff. Was this like the, the actual kind of stuff you did at work when you wrote C for a living? Uh, some of it, yeah. So I, I mentioned I worked on Palm OS, uh, and Palm OS is a great example of the same general kind of thing. It had uh, a little bit of what, what you'd call cooperative multitasking. Um, so uh, just, just to, to contrast with what, what a reasonable computer would do now, now you've got an operating system with a scheduler and you have a bunch of different tasks you've told it to run. If you pop into a console on macOS or Linux and you type PS space AUX, it'll show you all the processes currently running. And there are many of them. I mean, there are certainly at least tens of them and sometimes hundreds. Or if you're you know, on a busy computer, thousands or more. Um, you know, there's a lot of them. And the operating system will take a bunch of little time slices and it will assign for each core what process is currently running on it. And after that process is run for a little bit, it'll switch it out. And so if you've got eight cores, then there are eight processes running at once. And the operating system is going to ch continually change which eight are running out of the you know 500 you've got currently scheduled to run. Does this kind of make sense? My head is spinning because there's so many things that, uh, that I'm not familiar with. And also okay. my, my ADD is distracting me. <coughs> Excuse okay. me. I'm getting over a cold. Um, <clears throat> so the first thing I'm curious about, if I do PSAUX on my computer and then do yeah. a pipe WC-L, I'm just sure. curious. I have 510 processes running on my computer right now. That's about right, yeah. And how do I know how many cores my computer has? I'm, I'm on my Mac and I went to about is, is it a Mac? Mac. Laptop? It is, is yeah. It you probably got around four. Four is, is the standard for most Mac laptops. Um, it is possible to buy an extra beefy Mac Pro with eight, I think. Uh, it's also a little weird because uh, with what's called hyper-threading, uh, the number of cores reported is not always going to be the, name as the, sa the same as the number of physical cores. But let's say you've got about four. So when okay. I say you could have up to about eight at a time, you've probably got four rather than eight. And um, so when computers were newer, like a long time ago, computers generally just had one core, right? Yes. And the switching back and forth was generally not automatic early on. I mean, eventually that happened. But okay. And what do you mean by the switching back and forth thing? I, I think you kind of explained that a little bit, but can sure. you like 
Yeah. Well, so so when you had one core, but you still had uh, multitasking, kind of like modern multitasking. So this would ha this started happening with cooperative multitasking around about Windows three one, but really like Windows on oh that ninety five, I think, was one of the first Windows machines with preemptive multitasking with multitasking that would automatically do it pretty much right. And if one process just kept running, it would it wouldn't shut down your entire machine while it waited for it. Um, there were non-Windows operating systems that uh, did this earlier. But for instance, Mac, uh, that was the big difference between uh, System 7, you know, old cooperative multitasking Mac, and OS X. OS X was the first Mac that used real modern multitasking. Windows 95 was the first Windows box that used, well, Windows NT, I guess, also used it. And that was available, but only on the server. It was weird and expensive, and very few people used it. Uh, but that also used real multitasking. Uh, whereas most Unixes have used real multitasking for, for as long as anybody listening here is likely to have used a Unix. Um, yeah, long, long time back. Um, when I got to college in uh, 1994, 93, uh, they, uh, using old pre-1.0 versions of Linux, that already used you know real, real multitasking, as did many of the older Unixes before that. But that's that. That's the furthest back on Unix that I can speak from experience. Okay. Side note: It's always super interesting to me to hear the ways different programmers pronounce different terms because we see these things so much and we type them and we read them, but we don't always say them out loud that much. Sure. I well, I say Linux, and that's what I hear the most. You you say yeah. Linux, and I suspect that you're saying Linux because of Linus Torvalds. I am indeed. Got it. Uh, and I, I suspect so, that that's actually the correct pronunciation. Linux is correct and Linux is, yeah. is not strictly correct. So back in the day when people asked the Finnish fellow with a, a decent but not perfect grasp of English how you pronounced it, uh, you could find a little audio file that was copied around everywhere. You can probably still find it if you look, uh, of him saying in, in Finnish, but the equivalent of my name is Linus Torvalds, and I pronounce Linux as Linux. And you could find another fellow who rendered roughly the same thing in English. Uh, and so if you were, a, were tremendously pedantic, then you should say Linux. And you'd say Linux, <laughs> Linus Torvalds. Uh, and if you were less pedantic, but you said Linus Torvalds, which is, of course, how you usually say that in English, then you could call it Linux. Um, there's no particular reason you can't say Linux. Uh, I mean, I'm in the process of moving from the U.S. to the U.K., and I promise you, there's all kinds of things that are pronounced differently in different places. Uh, That's so, so funny. <laughs> so there's kind of three levels of pedantry, or whatever that word might be. Sure. Pro probably more than that, but three that I know of. Because I am a pedant pedantic person. You might even say a tremendously pedantic person, although not so tremendously pedantic that I would say Linux. I need to look up uh, pedantry. Is that a word? Yes. Oh, yeah. Pedantry. Excessive concern with minor details and rules, which is a little bit self-referential because that's kind of what I'm doing right now. Indeed. Um, Indeed. Another, another pedantic pronunciation point is uh, sudo. Mm. A lot of people say sudo. But it's not sudo, it's sudo. Sure, why not? At least that's my understanding. You, do you know why well, it's sudo and not sudo? Well, so S-U-D-O uh, is because it's super user. If you say sudo, you're saying it because it's super user do. There is an S-U command that becomes super user. And so you are saying 
perform the SU command and then do an action. So if it's sudo, it's sudo because it's su do, super user do. Uh, it's a combination of those two commands. Uh, if you say sudo, it's because you're pronouncing it like the thing that it's a pun on. I mean, one of the difficulties here is that a lot of Unix commands, especially older Unix commands, are puns or other. Oh, sort really? Of I was unaware. Well, it's uh, if if you look at things like, um, so you know, there's a, a pager, like a text pager called more, and so you can say something like, uh, "My program pipe to more," and what it'll do is it'll run your program, it'll get the text output, and it'll show you to it, show it to you page by page, and you can hit spacebar repeatedly to scroll through it, and it's called more because at the bottom of each page it says more, waiting for you to hit a key. That's, that's what a pager program does. Is it lets that you, makes you know, so yeah. much more sense because it always infuriated me that there was a program called less and a program called more. And their yeah. names were opposites, but their functions seemed identical. That kind of joke used to be really common. It's still pretty common. Got it. My life just got like 6% better with that knowledge. Um, but so, yeah, uh, S-U-D-O can be su-do, which is two things together. I mean, sure, why not? Uh, when RVM wraps it, it wraps it as RVM sudo altogether as one word. Sure, why not? You know, it's RVM sudo. Why isn't it just RVM sudo together as one? Why not? Uh, but sudo is also a prefix that means false. So if you say sudo, you're saying as super user do this thing. And if you say sudo, you're saying, you know, what I tell you is false, which is kind of funny in the old Unix sense of humor. That is kind of funny. Um, I, I've always wanted to implement a command, su don't. <laughs> if, if you proceed anything with su don't, it doesn't do it. Sure. Well, and so that's the same idea, is if you came up with something silly to call su don't, and you got really popular, like your command got really popular, there'd be this thing called su don't, which is a weird in-joke on a thing that a lot of the people using it may never have heard of, which is the exact same problem with less, right? Yeah. Less is far more popular than more. And more made sense as a, as a literal translation of what it did, but less doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, less is more commonly used, but it doesn't really make any sense. Why is it called less? And it's called less because it's, it's poking at more. It's having fun with the idea that if you get one called more, then this one can be called less. Less is yeah. more. And in fact, I think that's the joke. Less is more. And why? Yeah, yeah. Um, why do those two separate things even exist? Like, is there an actual um, utilitarian reason that, that somebody created that second program called less other than to yes. just have a joke? Yes. Uh, so more is a very old program. It's a very primitive program, and it's designed for back when terminals did almost nothing. The reason that it literally prints the word more at the bottom and expects you to hit spacebar to go through it repeatedly, which is not usually what you do these days, you have arrow keys, dates back far enough that getting the terminal to scroll stuff around wasn't reliably doable. It depended what brand of monitor you owned. And so, I mean, yes, there was a standard for it, but not everything implemented. It didn't always work. And sometimes you were working over like Telnet or something and it didn't work at all reliably. Um, and so more is such an old program. It dates back to the idea that control text console is really too complicated to work reliably. And less is based on the idea that, no, we, we have, I mean, you can control the text terminal. You can use arrow keys to scroll up and down. That's most of what you're going to do. You may want to quit out of it. Like, you're probably looking at it on a, on a screen that has individual windows on it. You're probably not looking at it, at it on a full monitor text window anymore. Uh, and so less uses some newer, more modern features with the understanding, when I say newer, more modern, I mean like 1992 level newer, more modern. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. So now I have to ask, what text editor do you use? Uh, I have slowly switched myself from Emacs, which I used for about 20 years, to Sublime. I still use Emacs sometimes in some cases, but I use Sublime most of the time now. Why did you want to switch from Emacs to Sublime? Uh, so the promise of Emacs is that if you have a fully scriptable text editor written in dynamic language, in this case Elisp, the idea is that you should be able to learn the dialect and fully customize it and write little scripts that run in your text editor on your text. And that, that's a wonderful, that, that's, a, that's a hypnotic promise for it to make. I love the idea. That's so cool. Um, you will discover once you've really thought through that premise and thought what you want to do with it and why you want it and then sit down with the reality that Emacs is not that editor. And for a long time, you might be tempted to say, well, um, look, I'll find a particular type of Emacs and I'll find a particular environment and I'll use it that way and that will be that editor. And then after you try that, you'll discover that that Emacs is also not that editor. The, the mm. promise is not there. It's a really seductive promise, but it doesn't actually exist anywhere in the Emacs ecosystem. The things that you want from that aren't, aren't there to be found. Well, that's kind um, of disappointing. Well, there's a lot of computers that work that way, right? Like we also thought Twitter was going to be a positive thing where if you can just like and retweet, then that level of positivity is going to mean that there are not big, bitter arguments on the internet like there was an email. How did that work out for us, right? Yeah, man. Um. um Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. That's that's progress. <laughs> I thought the uh, I thought the appeal of Emacs. So I've used Emacs very very little. I I over the years I've dipped my toe into Lisp a number of times, just very briefly, and sure. I I used Emacs for Lisp because I understand Emacs and Lisp are kind of hand in glove. Because is Emacs written in Lisp? Is that the case? Yes. Yeah, Got it. Emacs is basically a tiny little C core that interprets Lisp, and then a whole bunch of Lisp layered on top of it. Okay, okay, and so I I dabbled in it then, and I you know it's it's you don't use a mouse really in Emacs, you just use uh, key commands, and it was yep. very reminiscent to me of Vim, and so yep. I understood the premise and the the whole like value proposition of Emacs to be really similar to Vim in the sense that you do everything with the keyboard and not with the mouse. Is, is that the central idea behind it or, or is it more that other thing, um, of the, like, um, it, it, it can, it fits with your DSL or is it maybe just kind of both? Um, any project as large and as old as Emacs or VM has been multiple things to multiple people. Hmm. Just kind of by definition. Uh, and so I can't tell you there's any one thing that defines Emacs or Vim because they're too big and too old and have, have so much history. But there's not any one thing that defines them. There are, you know, 10,000 things that define them. And there are about 50 of them that might be worth the trouble of, of a history of and talking about. Um, yeah. A scriptable editor is a very old idea. So old that said, S-E-D, the, the language, said is short for scriptable editor. That's how, how old oh. the idea of that is. Um, now, whether you think said is a good implementation of that, I'll say it was awesome in its day, and its day was a very long time ago. Mm. Uh, Emacs was, well, it, it's, Emacs is short for editing macros, where a macro is a little script that runs in your editor. Oh. Yeah, Emacs was a set of macros that grew out of another different editor and sort of launched off into its own whole thing. 
um, so long ago that, that, yeah, you were looking at like VI or Ed as possible alternatives to it. Uh, that was how it started. Uh, is that how people would, would recommend it today? Yeah, some people do. You can find people who do. Uh, I think you'll find more kind of dis disaffected people like me as far as the whole, you know, do, do Emacs scripts run reliably and portably? You know, basically the answer is no. You can find okay. people to say yes, but basically the answer is no. Um, getting Emacs to reliably never include tabs in your files is fantastically difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, really. And and I mean, you, if you post, post that on Twitter, I will say from experience, people will argue with you and they'll give you a bunch of solutions. And you say, well, I do that, but in this case, it doesn't work. And they say, oh, yeah, I guess there's a special configuration for that mode. You could do that. I say, well, I do that, but here's this other case where it doesn't work. And they say, oh, yeah, okay, I guess that doesn't work reliably. Then that's without getting into the multiple versions of Emacs. There are many different versions of Emacs, and they do not run the same dialect of Lisp. Oh, man. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to point out Emacs as being especially difficult here. Like, getting your scripting language to run reliably on a wide variety of things is, is massively difficult. Oh, like, yeah. Everywhere, not just for Emacs, like everywhere. Um, but one of the big things we've learned from getting all of our programs to run on servers instead of on the client is that it's a lot easier to get one server set up so it works than to get every client you use set up so it works. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's it, it's why so much stuff runs on the server, right? Like, you don't have to do tech support for 50 different flavors of Windows and 10 different flavors of Mac. Yeah, I can only imagine the nightmare of supporting, like, a desktop application that's deployed across so many different versions of windows on all these different kinds of machines and all that kind of stuff that's have you done that kind of thing in your career oh yeah man i mean you, you go back and you go back enough years and there wasn't much in the way of networking which means there wasn't much in the way of servers so of course it ran on the client where else it was, was it going to run how do you trouble the troubleshoot that kind of stuff and reproduce bugs do you have to like i imagine sometimes you just have to go there and like physically be there and try to reproduce it in person or maybe not i don't know how, how do you approach that stuff if your customer and their computer are physically available to you you can totally do that and i've done that uh very often they are not physically available to you like if you sell a consumer thing to a consumer the odds that they want a qa team in their living room are pretty low <laughs> right um i mean it might it might yeah, it might in theory be a good idea, but it almost never happens in practice. You don't you don't ship the QA person to the customer's house, um, and so what you had instead was uh, you'd often call them QA farms, uh, but you have a bunch of different pieces of hardware and software that you know you want to run on, and you have one or more machines with that hardware software combination for each one, and you've got like t tables or rooms depending on what configurations you're dealing with and how much they vary. Uh, and you have a lot of human beings who install your software on these things and run your software on these things. And you've got some kind of a schedule for how often you reinstall, you know, how long you let it run, what inputs you check it with. And then you have a test plan, um, usually several test plans, but you have sort of a grand test plan with the other test plans as part of it. Uh, and so you just have these folks who on, let's call it a weekly schedule. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but let, let's call it a weekly schedule where at the beginning of the week, they're reinstalling the software on all these machines, and then they're, they're going through the set of things that you want to work. Um, and so if you're shipping the, the software from the development side to the QA side on, again, let's call it a weekly basis. Again, sometimes more, sometimes less. 
then they can, at the start of that next week, install your new software on everything. And if on the Korean version of Windows 95, there's some particular interaction that you broke and you don't know it yet, then by about Wednesday of that week, you will know it because some human being has, has gone through the steps and gone, oh, hey, that doesn't work anymore. Man. Yeah, that's... Uh that's that's a little bit rough and and so i i appreciate the luxury that i have of being able to deploy to one server and and that's it in a lot of ways uh programming has gotten a lot more complicated it seems but in certain other ways it's certainly gotten a lot less complicated when we're doing it right yeah i mean that's that that's the goal right is that that in theory if you've got you know docker and docker is the gold standard then you should be able to run your docker com- container the same way everywhere and that mostly works yeah um so here's a question for you let's say so you know um as you get older you gain perspective um and like i i am having more and more interactions with people who are a lot younger than me so as we record this i'm 35 and and so i've taught some classes recently with students who are like 19 or 22 around that age and of course they don't have and can't possibly have the perspective of somebody who's been coding for 10 years and and somebody who started as a kid on windows 95 and all that kind of stuff sure and so there's there's just certain things when you when you start in 2019 that you just don't realize so for somebody like you um i gather that you have a very broad perspective with a lot of different types of programming experience is there any experiences you've had doing all the different kinds of coding that you've had that you wish you could impart to somebody who's starting today and they might be ignorant of these things due to the fact that they're only starting now. Let me, uh, let me turn that question around on you. I do have an answer, but first let me turn that question around on you. Um, it is easy for us to assume that the old computer experience where you had one core, one processor, an operating system that did almost nothing, you know, a, simple, a simpler machine language, is kind of the basis on which all of this is built because historically that's true historically that is absolutely true that is the way that our our little evolution here went and so it's easy to look at say the dos thing that i was talking about as the absolute foundation of computer science and that if you could learn that which again is is a lot of where i learned it um apple II before that but if you learn that then by historically following all of these various steps, you get to a full understanding all the way to the ground of what programming looks like now. Now, on the one hand, what I just described is just about exactly the way I was personally educated. And on the other hand, when one of these youngsters comes to you or comes to me and says, you know, I don't actually care how this other thing running in a different process on the machine is implemented. I just care how it talks to me. They're right and we're wrong. Let me tell you why. <laughs> I mean, you may have figured it out already. You probably have. But, but I'll say this just so anybody else listening can, uh, can, can disagree with me in depth rather than just on the surface. Um, when I was running on DOS, when I was looking at the actual machine language of the machine on a 386, and I knew the history back to the 286 and the 8086 and the 8088, uh, and so I could you know, look through that machine language and in some sense, I knew the machine as deeply as it was possible to know it. 
in another sense, the hardware guys of that time would have laughed at the idea that I knew the machine as deeply as it's possible to know it. I mean, I didn't know about DRAM refresh and those, those random delays that you'd get at random times when I thought I had the full timing fully worked out. And in turn, a good physicist would laugh at the hardware guys for their understanding of what was going on. Because if you look at it, there's a, a good chance that the voltage goes from zero to one at the right time or one to zero at the right time. And when I say a good chance, I mean, it's 99.999 something. But now you multiply by the number of transistors in the machine. And believe me, some of them do it wrong. And in turn, you know, these days we have error correcting RAM and a bunch of other things that will usually catch that problem. And if you ever want to be just utterly boggled, look at the scale of some of the Google stuff where they're running giant server farms, checking how often they just get the wrong bit from a network adapter or a disk or, you know, the ad instruction or a motherboard, you know, off of these machines, because we're, we're finally dealing with scales that show us these problems that we've always had. Um, I don't know the machine all the way to the ground. And on a good day, I'm humble enough to remember that. I know a lot of complicated things, and my metal model is very deep with a lot of subtlety. That's cool. That's occasionally that helps me out. That's nice. Um, but at some level, I don't know, and I have to admit ignorance. And it is often the most productive to understand that somewhere underneath this fundamental bedrock you think that you understand is ignorance and randomness and the fact that the universe does stuff and you don't actually know what. And so in a very real way, these, these modern folks who start where they start and don't want to learn all the levels I know just because I know them, and instead they want to learn the various levels in the order in which it will help them, are doing it right, and we're doing it wrong. History is fun. There's nothing wrong with learning history. It turns out the order in which we discovered these things historically is kind of random. And so learning them in that order, sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. But the teaching order doesn't have to be the same as the history order. And your debugging order to help you out in your job really doesn't have to be the same as the historical order and almost never is. Wow, that's a really good point. And I guess it's kind of like this, this analogy has been coming into my mind as we've been talking. Um, I play guitar and mm -hmm. I consider myself a pretty good guitar player. I sure. know very little about actual guitar hardware and the different brands of guitars and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes I find myself in conversations with other guitarists and they start talking about all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, I don't know 90% of what you assume I know just because I play guitar. Um, but that doesn't stop me from being pretty good at guitar. Um, and maybe it's kind of similar with programming. Um, you, you do have kind of the luxury of the fact that a lot of the details... I guess you could say the vast, vast majority of the details are abstracted away from you. You don't have to care about how the hardware of the computer runs. And of course, you don't have to care about the materials the computer was built with and how they were mined and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's probably a lot more productive in the vast majority of cases to focus on that high level abstraction rather than uh than being concerned with all the low level details although like you said it is at least to me really fun and interesting to to understand that stuff too yeah I, absolutely and you know if i was gonna if i was gonna answer your question straight 
if I was going to answer your question about what what would I like to be able to just kind of kind of put into their heads. Um, the basic computer architecture of an old computer that has one core going at once and it has chunks of memory and the chunks of memory point at each other by just having like a, a number for what byte in memory it is, that is still the abstraction that our low-level systems programmers use to this day. And so understanding that is still useful, not because it's physically how the hardware used to work and doesn't anymore, but instead it's how the people who write our language interpreters and our operating systems still think we think. Okay. So you used to learn that abstraction by, by working on the hardware that actually literally works that way, uh, except at this point, almost no hardware literally works that way. Like the lowest end Arduinos and things, maybe, sort of, but not quite. But even those, I think, usually have virtual memory even now. Um, and so it's it's interesting that that has lasted as a model of computing a lot longer than it has lasted as physically how a computer works. Um, so when it, I was when I was in college, I uh, I took some assembly classes, mm -hmm. which I did very poorly in. Although I had the world's most entertaining teacher, which which kind of um, it maybe it made the class more fun, but also maybe harder to absorb the knowledge. Although the fact that I did poorly in that class is completely uh, the fault is not with the teacher. Um, my under so my vague memories from that were that sometimes we wrote assembly code directly, mm -hmm. and I remember something about like spark architecture versus some other kind of architecture but i also remember that we sometimes wrote c code and mm -hmm. then we would compile that c code into assembly language yep. um, but our, our teacher told us one of the very few things he told us that that sticks with me today is that a human can always write more efficient assembly code than than the compiler can or something like that i'm not sure if yep. i even have that right no, you're, you're basically right. Okay. Can you talk about that? Like, is that something that you've done, just like writing actual assembly code? Sure. Uh, so I mentioned I used to work on Palm OS, which was 68,000 architecture rather than, you know, Spark or Intel or whatever. Okay, sorry. Uh, I was going to ask you, but I didn't want to interrupt, and I'm going to interrupt you now. What's yeah. Palm OS? Uh, well, do you remember there used to be a thing called a Palm Pilot? Yeah, kind of. Okay. Imagine a cell phone that didn't make phone calls. Okay. Like, it runs little apps. It has a it has a reasonable-sized display, so you can see things on it. You can poke around in your calendar and to-do list. And, uh, yeah, and so it runs the same kind of apps your smartphone does. But the original ones were not constantly network or cellular connected. It was just a little computer, small enough to hold in your hand. Okay, like a Paleolithic iPad. Like a Paleolithic iPad. That's a great way to put it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, a Palm, oh man, after 3Com Bottom, it was a Palm Connected Organizer, but everybody remembers this as a Palm Pilot. Uh, that was a great name, and it turns out a terrible lawsuit with Pilot Pens in France. <laughs> so, you know, it's why it stopped being called that far too early. Um, but, um, yeah, what is Palm OS? Palm OS is what ran on the Palm Pilot. Okay. Okay. And that was, um, okay, so that had a connection to assembly code, but I forgot what it was. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so I've written assembly code because I've written an operating system, and specifically an operating system for a little embedded computer that happened to be used like an organizer. You know, those like Franklin Datebook organizer things, paper ones? Yeah. 
imagine that computerized and working pretty well. Like that's a Wait, Palm Pilot. So you worked on software for the Palm Pilot or you worked yeah. on the Palm Pilot itself? Uh, I worked on the operating system software. So I'm not, I'm not a hardware guy. I'm not a hardware designer. Uh, I have I have done C language, but it's it's pretty common for the division to be between people who design the processor itself and people who write the low level code on the processor. C tends to be write the, the low level code on the processor. So I've written code for things like being able to boot that up and initially talk to the hardware, and I've written code for things like displaying items in the to do list and positioning pixels on the screen and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Uh, a lot of what I worked on was stuff for the launcher which shows pictures of all your apps and you touch the app and it runs it uh, and lets you organize your apps and, and folders and things like that. And on uh, for, for a long time, a Palm didn't really have much storage except the storage in, in memory on the device itself. And then they added a little slot for an SD card, um, uh, MMC or SD card, but basically the same thing. Uh, and so you could insert one of those and you could copy apps to them and you could keep data on them and stuff like that. I wrote a bunch of code for you know copying copying apps and data to and from the SD cards. I mean, what, one of the things you notice when you talk to an old systems programmer is that everything they do kind of sounds trivial and boring, and it's because it took so many people to do anything in those languages and on those platforms. Yeah. Uh, um, what, what, I, what I do for the amount of time I did it sounds fairly interesting for a C guy, but only because I practiced in how to make it sound that way. Wow. So, so tragically, tragically, that thing I just said, that's the interesting version. <laughs> no, that actually does sound pretty interesting just because it's so incredibly different from anything I've ever done for work or not for work, anything I've ever done at all. Um, and so like you would write that low-level code and then other people would write software that interfaced with what you wrote and, and they would kind of use your stuff as a building block to do higher level stuff? Is that the right idea? Yeah. So we, we did both. Uh, the launcher was an application. And so it did, for the Palm, high level stuff. And the code to do SD card management was low level stuff. It would have higher level applications like the launcher or like third party apps that would, um, that would you know, list the files that were on the device or find out what Palm databases were available on that card or copy files back and forth or, you know, look for a list of apps that were available on the card, that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. So we're getting, we're getting uh, toward the end of, end of our time and probably time to start heading toward a conclusion. Um, okay. I think I've asked you exactly one question on the topic that I meant to ask you about, but we, we, um, we did what I always do, which we, which we went down a whole bunch of side paths and then side paths off of those side paths and yet more side paths off of those side paths. Um, but, um, but I hope it was interesting to other people. It was certainly, this has been fascinating for me. We've, we've touched on so much stuff that I never, never uh, think about normally, um, but it's, it's really interesting to know this stuff. Um, so let me let me ask you one more actual question before we uh, before we wind down, and then I'll ask you where people can find you online and all that kind of stuff. There was a part of your book where you're talking about Rack and Webrick and Nginx, and I I wrote down all these terms, um, and we we aren't going to have time to like fully unpack this question, so we'll have to like pick a slice of it and, and just address that. But my, my terms that I wrote down are Rack, Webrick, Nginx, Apache, 
Puma, Unicorn, Thin, and Passenger. And I think what most of these things are, are web servers. But yeah, but I don't completely understand what all of this is. If there's any of this stuff that's like most relevant, actually, you know what? If, if, if I can, the question I'd like to ask is, what the heck is rack? I've come across rack so many times, and the, the answer that I've been able to find is that it's middleware, and it's like, okay, I can kind of understand what middleware is, but that doesn't really advance my understanding, really, of what rack is. Can you help with that? Absolutely. Uh, so most of the things you mentioned there are basically web servers, although there's kind of two tiers. There's the, the first level web servers with Apache and Nginx that spend most of their time serving static files and parsing requests, doing kind of the most basic but fastest stuff a web server does. And then it passes off to a Ruby app server like Passenger or uh, Webrick that handles concurrency, like spawning threads or processes for your app. And then eventually that passes off to your app. Now, you've probably noticed but that by the time something gets to your app, you're not parsing HTTP headers. You're not handling the raw low-level stuff. So Rack is like CGI, if you're old enough and unfortunate enough to remember CGI. <laughs> um, but what it is, is there's a, there's a byte-level, protocol-level HTTP definition. And your web servers that sit above you, like Nginx or Passenger, parse all that stuff from the raw wire format from the kind of lowest level, most portable, written down in internet standards format there, and it converts it into something more useful. And so by the time your Ruby app receives it, it's turned into a hash table of fields in a, in a standard format, where, for instance, the hash key path, the string path, tells you what the URL is on your server. And then there's another one, I want to say host, that is you know, what server it was requested on. It cuts that stuff up and it turns it into a Ruby interface that tells you Here's the server. Here's the here's the URL within that server. Here's what parameters you've got, and so by the time Rack is done with it, it's turned into a useful Ruby API that calls down into your app. So Rack is that API. Now there's some other stuff that ships with Rack. Uh, I mean, for example, there are there are little pieces of what are called middleware that you can stick in to do stuff like automatically set your content type based on what it sees your app return. And so if you don't want to have to set your own content type, you can say, hey, stick this piece in the middle that will set the content type for me. Um, and so rack middleware are pieces that go in between your app and the web server to either do some processing on the way in or change some stuff on the way out or both. Um, okay. And- I think I'm kind of get at least at a high level, I understand it, I think. So it's like, you know, we have C, so we don't have to write assembly code directly. Yep. And we have racks, so we don't have to deal with all these minute details of HTTP directly. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great way to think about it. They're both abstractions over a kind of raw protocol. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that helps. Um, all right. Well, Noah, where can people find you online and, and your book and all that kind of stuff? Uh, so on Twitter, you can find me as Codefolio, C-O-D-E-F-O-L-I-O. Or if you put a dot before that I.O., that's, uh, that's my personal domain. Um, you can also see my performance stuff in Ruby Weekly pretty, uh, pretty continuously. They tend to pick up all my interesting performance writing. Uh, yeah, any of those places are good. Uh, if, you, uh, I mean, if any of this is interesting, I'll say rebuilding Rails to, to bring all that stuff we talked about full circle to the question you asked to get there. 
Rebuilding Rails was the book I wrote for people coming from my point of view and trying to figure out what in the world Ruby and Ruby on Rails were doing. Oh, okay. And so it's kind of the... Man, I don't even know how to pronounce that word. The uh, the, the old pedantic, you know, stiff guy's um, explanation of all the things that are working, that are that are happening there. You know, let's take it a level down. No, let's take it a level below that. No, let's take it a level below that. G-R-O-G-N-A-R-D. It's used to indicate people with a, a strong uh, love of tradition. Actually, you, you, you're referring to yourself as a pedant. That's a good one to learn. You, you could uh, see if that applies to you as well. Got uh, it. But it's used for old like war gamers and stuff, people with a strong focus on tradition and the rules. Anyway, uh, yeah, so Rebuilding Rails was the, the book I wrote for people like me. Uh, I was going to ask if you included links under your videos and was going to suggest that if somebody wanted a, an introduction to the same kind of thing as my book, but, but stripped down to a, a really simplified experience, uh, I ha have given it as a uh, conference workshop a couple of times. Got and while the link to download my book for free is no longer, it is no longer functional from that. Uh, all of the code to do a sort of stripped down version of, of the first few chapters is just in the workshop slide there. So if a keynote uh, presentation with that is useful to them, I, I've uh, I put a link. Oh, in yeah. The, uh, actually, you know what? Let me give you a better link than that. Uh, here we go. Uh, they both go the same place, but the bit.ly link is, is a little easier okay. to type. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. And that should... Uh, that, that should give the workshop version of all of that code if anybody's interested. Okay. Okay. Well, this conversation has been both educational for me and entertaining. Um, so thanks so much for coming on the show. Cool.